This is season one of the Free Flow Podcast, a media project of Free Flow Institute. I'm Chandra Brown, founder and director of Free Flow Institute. Welcome to the Free Flow Podcast. Our show is supported in part by the Montana Arts Council and the Prop Foundation, and our theme music was created by Nate Hedgie and Wartime Blues. If you've ever wanted to spend a week immersed in a landscape surrounded by history, modern controversy, and ancient secrets, as well as by sandstone cliffs and some of the most iconic desert views the West has to offer, you might consider Free Flow Institute's upcoming field course, the 2021 Green River Field Institute. If you're a journalist, a student of journalism, a communicator, a policymaker, a storyteller, you might find the structure of this course compelling It's a full week of land and river-based exploration of Western water policy, tribal issues, and land management, layered atop an ongoing conversation about how to tell good stories. The Green River Field Institute features a fully supported multi-day raft trip down Desolation Canyon, and you'll work and study under the leadership of Heather Hansman, who literally wrote the book on the Green River. Two years ago, Heather, who was an online editor at Powder Magazine and is currently the environmental columnist at Outside Online, wrote an account of her solo source-to-confluence descent of the Green, from its headwaters in the high mountains of Wyoming to its confluence with the Colorado. Her book, entitled Down River, is the culmination of adventure, inquiry, and super-solid reporting. The Green is the most significant tributary to the Colorado. It runs across the western landscape, through national parks, cities, farmlands, habitats for endangered species, and incidentally, some of the largest natural gas fields in the U.S. 33 million people depend upon its water. The Green is hardly pristine, though, as it's been dammed and diverted for irrigation and sucked dry by urban centers. As Heather notes, The green is crucial, overused, and at risk, now more than ever. On her free flow course in mid-June, you'll have the opportunity to learn from an expert in the realm of reporting and truth-telling while exploring a stunningly beautiful section of a critically important western river. Today on the podcast, we feature a quick discussion that I had with Heather in early March. We talk about her relationship with rivers the role of personal experience in telling bigger, universal stories, the art of mining truth from the darkness surrounding social justice and ecological issues, the importance of community and journalism, and some systems for finding and prioritizing projects. Heather also reads a bit from Downriver. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Heather Hansman. Before lunch, we hit the first real rapid. Moose Creek, a narrow, jagged rock sluice that had looked fast and pinchy when we driven past it the night before, peering into the gorge from the road. Now, with skimpy early season flows, there's barely enough water to split the guts of the glacially eroded granite. A few fly fishermen flick their lines into the pools above it as we pull into an eddy upstream of them to scout the rapid, looking downriver into the gnash of white water. The river pillows up, then drops over a horizon line. 
We can't see beyond, but it looks like there's enough water to sneak our tubby little pack rafts through. Mike decides to walk around. Ben and I slide back into our boats and paddle out into the center channel. The current swells as I tee up to the top wave, pointing my bow into the break. I had been nervous, sure that I'd been off the water for too long, uncomfortable in a new boat, uncertain how my body would hold up, or whether it was stupid and stubborn to try to take a trip this long. My paddle clashes with a rock, shaking me off my line, and then I'm in the trough of the wave train, fighting to stay upright. There's a specific joy in reading water and in knowing the micro-adjustments necessary to find a tongue of fast current and thread through the shallow ruby rapids, and my muscle memory comes back in the quick twitch of white water. I run through clean. It's over in a flurry of frantic paddle strokes and a smack of just-melted glacier to the face. Ben cleans it too and catches up to me in the slack water below the rapid. We tamp down our nervous laughs, catch our breath, and turn and point our boats downstream. So I think a a really nice place to start would just be to discuss your relationship to water um, and, and what rivers have come to mean to you over your lifetime. Um, So maybe you can just kind of talk about water and, and what it, what it means in your life. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I kind of, fell into water and fell into river running almost by accident. Like it wasn't, there definitely wasn't an intentional path there. Um, when I was 18, I was a freshman in college. I basically wanted a job where I could be outside. Um, I grew up in a city. I grew up in Boston. And I'd kind of really been fascinated with, you know, being, being outdoors. Um, and I, my mom had sort of offhand at a conference met a guy who ran a guiding company in Maine on the Kennebec River and asked him, you know, oh, do you hire, do you hire college kids? I have a daughter who's in college. And he was like, yeah, sure. You know, well, basically was like, we'll hire anybody, (laughs) send her up. Um, And I had never really been, I'd maybe, you know, been on a river trip once on family vacation or something like that. Um, Had no experience, showed up totally blind, was the youngest kid on the river. You have to be 18 to guide in Maine. And I had just turned 18. Um, was the youngest kid on the river that year and totally fell in love with it. Like loved everything about it, loved the people, loved the idea of kind of pushing myself, loved being in charge of things for the first time, loved the scenery, the whole thing was just like I had a huge crush on it. Um, And so I kept doing that kind of through college. That was my summer job. Um, And then after that, when I was trying to, I had kind of decided that I wanted to move out west after college. I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. It was very loosey-goosey, unformed. I want to move to the mountains. Um, and a guy that I had raft guided with was like, oh, I can get you a job in the winter working and skiing. No big deal. Again, they'll hire anybody. You're not special. Just come on out. Um, <laughs> and so this, this guy that I knew through Rivers kind of brought me west. Um, and then I kept kind of working you know, that then became my summer job. And it became this kind of thread that really shaped, in a lot of ways, kind of shaped a lot of my life choices, and also has kind of been this touchstone of community and of place and of being outside. So yeah, and kind of a weird, it's interesting now to kind of look back on those stories and be like, oh, yeah, that was, that was one of the things that pulled through. But it definitely has been this kind of factor in, in shaping a ton of my choices. 
Yeah, totally. It's interesting how, you know, similar to you, I started whitewater guiding when I was 18. And now I think back to, you know, my life trajectory and how the choices I have made, the places I have been, the communities that I've entered into have so much to do with the river. And in fact, perhaps everything to do with the river. And so it's, it's wonderful to hear that you also experience that the you know the river has a significant trajectory or influence on your on your trajectory, and so you came out west. And but where did you go to school, Heather? I went to Colby College in Maine, and I was a you know again I was an English major, but I didn't really think about writing. I didn't. I don't think I didn't know that writing could be a job that you could actually had have. Yeah, And so I'd always kind of loved reading and loved writing and it felt like something that was really important to me, but it was never sort of a, like, I will be, I will go to school to be a writer. <laughs> like I never had yeah. that intention. Yeah, right. But you studied English. You've obviously loved words and books and literature. Um, and then writing, have you ever, did you ever consider yourself a writer prior to um prior to sort of intentionally um endeavoring down that path like did you write stories as a kid did you write for fun did you ever journal like what was your early experience with writing like oh yeah I was like the kid who always had a notebook I was obsessed with Harriet the Spy when I was really young so I would like I had a little notebook and I would like write notes about all the neighbors and kind of I think I unintentionally was reporting from a really young age (laughs) Um, yeah and was always reading and always writing but I think there's sort of this weird almost like ego confidence thing about calling yourself a writer that feels hard like it feels scary to claim that I think in a lot of ways and it took me a long time even after I was you know working in journalism and especially after I started freelancing to kind of be like I am a writer there's a great I don't know do you ever listen to the um the long form podcast yeah, there's a yeah. one with Corey Jefferson, and they kind of ask him that similar question, and he was like, "Yeah, I get to put writer on my taxes, and that feels really yeah. good." <laughs> and I think about that all the time, where it's like, "Wow, yeah, this is this is my job. Like, it's it it almost feels fake, but it is true." Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's right, and it, there, I think you hit the nail on the head. There's that ego bit. There's that that challenge to believe the truth that you are a writer to believe what you're putting on your tax forms, to believe what you're telling friends and family when they ask, what do you do? Um, And that's one of the biggest hurdles to overcome. I'm sure. Writing such a weird sort of, it shows up in so many different ways and it, you know, like there's not one way to be a writer, you know, that can be fiction, that can be poems, that can be writing for yourself, that can be, you know, it's technical writing, like, writing is this thing that it's it's a craft and it's also a technical skill and it's also an art form and so I think that's part of it is that it's so fungible and so kind of amorphous that it can be hard to even be like you know here is here is how to be the one way to be a writer (laughs) there's no such thing as that so I think that's kind of part of that you know like what does that even when you try and put your hands around that what does that even mean it's a hard question yeah absolutely absolutely So when did you first begin to sort of carry that name tag around, you know, that label? When did you start to say or feel, I am a writer? Yeah, Um, I guess it's it's sort of a river story. I had, um, I 
blew out my shoulder kayaking, you know, after I'd kind of moved west and guided for a couple of years and was kind of in this like, oh, I don't know if I can, if I want to keep putting my body in this position where my job depends on it. And in that summer when I was recovering, I got an internship at a magazine. I was just kind of like throwing darts at the wall trying to figure stuff out. Um, and again, I like totally loved it. I loved thinking about story ideas. I loved kind of putting together a magazine and thinking about the pieces and starting to learn how to report. Um, and so that was sort of a flip where I was like, okay, maybe this could be, maybe this could be a thing that I could do. Um, and I, it's not necessarily a path I would advise people to go down, but I ended up applying to grad school and going back to school um, for journalism at CU in Boulder, where they have an environmental journalism program. Um, and that to me was sort of like, okay, I'm choosing to put myself on this path. And then, I mean, I guess to answer your question, there was still many, many years before I was like confident calling myself a writer, but that was sort of this, okay, I, this is the thing that feels good and resonates and like, can I work towards, can I work towards this? Yeah. And you know, I, you mentioned that you might not recommend that people take the path of graduate school right? For writing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that you hear a lot of, there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, I think the jury's still out on whether journalism school or an MFA program is, you know, if that's really worth the money or if that's worth the time. But I had a friend many years ago tell me that um, when you go to grad school, you're paying for the connections, right? You're paying for those relationships. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that rings true to you. I wonder if, you know, I, I guess two-part question, A, why wouldn't you necessarily recommend that pathway um, for, for aspiring writers? And then B, do you think that the do you think that there's some value in in the connections that you built while you were in grad school? Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a that's kind of a good way of thinking about it and an important framework. And I think part of why I wouldn't recommend it is because A, it is expensive and B, and journalism is not necessarily a lucrative field if that's a factor in your life. Um, and I think because a lot of the currency of writing, like we were saying earlier, there's no one way to do it. And a lot of the currency of writing is connections and is people and also is just words on paper and time. Like you're kind of as good as your clips are and as good as the things that, you, I mean, good as it sort of an arbitrary term but I think there's so much value in like what you can produce and having for me the value in grad school for me was having the time to just you know I kind of set aside those that year and a half to be like I'm just going to write as much as possible and kind of giving myself permission to be like okay this is me investing myself in this way and so that was I was kind of writing for whoever would take me doing a bunch of internships wrote for the local newspaper, wrote for some freebie sports magazines. And I think that, yeah, there's not one pathway, but I think that that giving yourself time and space and permission to really write and then also kind of having like a fire under your butt to do it is <laughs> part, part of the pressure too. But and I think that can look like a lot of different things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's necessarily and sort of fundamentally isolating work, the work mm -hmm. of writing, right? Telling stories, making art of, of, you know, many varieties can be really solitary work, but writing especially requires so much time in front of your notebook or in front of your computer, researching, composing, editing, et cetera, reading, you know? And so I, 
I think kind of to riff off um, what you were just discussing, maybe you can comment on the role that community plays in journalism now for you um, as, you know, you've, you've arguably like found your footing in the profession, right? You, you're an editor, you're a contributor, you're a columnist, you're a researcher, you're, um, you're in, you know, you, you are this active, productive member of the journalistic community. So what does that community do for you? Um, and how do you find your supports within it? Oh man. Yeah. It's so, I, it's, it's community is so important. And I think it's something that doesn't get enough play in this idea of being a writer and in writing. Cause so much of the work of writing is you and your brain and a blank page. And it's so, it's so hard and it's so isolating. And I think, especially in I'm just kind of wrapping up another book project and that's just so much time being on the island bashing your own brain against the page and I think for me community is there's so many different ways that it feels crucial in um in both sustaining the like mental energy to be a writer and in kind of having a sounding board and I think the idea that like writers are just these antisocial people in their cabins, you know, staring at the mountains and writing things out is totally like, maybe that works for some people, but that like, there's no way that would work for me. And I'm, you know, like over the years, and I think networking is such a like icky word, but so much of that network and connection with other writers and with editors that I've worked with in the past and, you know, like photographers, that that's the source of ideas. That's kind of a, it's often sort of a temperature check on, you know, I have a, we're in this weird digital time right now, but I have a flat group of other freelancers that I talk to pretty much every day. And it's like, sometimes it's tossing ideas around and saying, hey, is this, do you think this is interesting? Sometimes it's talking about contracts. Sometimes it's just the kind of like, oh, I'm having a hard day. How's everyone else doing? But that sort of baseline of coming up with ideas and checking in and sort of talking about even <laughs> there was a New York Times article a couple of weeks ago about semicolons um, and that got passed around in this like group of writers and we all had really strong feelings about semicolons so even having that group of people to kind of like dork out about is part of what makes writing fun and interesting and lively and sort of dynamic and I think that that for my own mental health for my sense of creativity for my sense of sort of uh, growth within the professional world like that's so you can't do any of that alone I think that having other people to talk about ideas with and to kind of workshop with is so it's so crucial and it makes it fun yeah yeah totally and and kind of speaking of of that element of fun too I mean the things that you write about or that you have historically written about are kind of categorically fun, right? Like you write about skiing, you write about rivers, you write about, um, you write about things that are like entertainingly contentious, you know, you, you're the things <laughs> that you write about necessarily to be prepared to write on them. You have to spend some time doing fun things, right. And like getting out and skiing or going paddling or going running. And, um, but how do you choose, you know, and how do you balance that 
impulse to stay and produce and type and research and compose? How do you, and work, how do you balance that with the other, you know, the, this other integral component of your work, which is getting outside and being with people and being um, in the world that you write about? Yeah, uh, I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if balance is, is a good <laughs> is present here, but um, I think in thinking about that, yeah, like sometimes I feel so so lucky that my job is my job. But I think it's hard to write about. You can't write about anything if you don't have anything to write about. And I think a big part of my framework for thinking about writing and journalism and particularly kind of environmental journalism and looking at resource use and looking at how humans interact with the outdoor world. A big part of that for me is finding ways to kind of meet people where they are and finding ways to, you know, suck people in by getting them in places where they do, they're open to the ideas and they're already talking about something that they care about and they're already kind of engaged in a place. And so often for me, I mean, that's part of how I came to this, but so often for me, that's recreation. And that's, you know, like I'm out, you're out on this big backpacking trip where you don't see anyone else for 10 days. Like that hits you somewhere where then you can care about things. And I think, you know, river trips are often the same for people. But for me, in trying to write about, say, water management or say, economics of recreation towns or something like that, that stuff can be so wonky and dead and numbersy and boring. And for me, it's really important to like give that, give those stories life and narrative and scene and humans. And to do that, you really have to be on the ground and you can't, you can't make that stuff up. Well, there's so much of that has to come from being in the place, being in the landscape, having your eyes on, you know, like experiencing it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of along those lines, you know, so much of your writing, so your essays and commentaries and articles have elements of you, you know, your own narrative, your own experience woven throughout them. So maybe you can just talk a little more about the role that personal stories, your personal narrative um, play in the, in the telling of bigger, more universal stories. Yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> thinking about the other day, you know, we're coming up on a year of COVID and I feel like I've been grounded and at home and I'm like oh man am I running out of stories to tell because I, I haven't been anywhere <laughs> but I think for me when I think and it's interesting kind of going back to the journalism school thing one of the things they teach you right away is like the I voice and the first person use that as little as possible like only use that if it's necessary and if there's a value in you being in the scene like nobody cares about you as much as you care about you <laughs> so I think I try to do that as judiciously as possible but on the other side of that coin when I think about like the things that I love to read and the things that resonate with me so many of those come with a strong narrative voice and in you know or something where the, the writer is really present and you're looking through their eyes and so I think especially when I you know things are kind of essay-based or it's really on the scene reporting I try to think of myself as like I'm the lens through which the reader is seeing the scene and so it's not necessarily how much do I, Heather, feel about it. It's, it's more like how do how much do I, person, feel about it, and how much can I sort of be this lens that makes us feel real or universal or is a way to kind of like give perspective to it. So yeah, I try to be, and it's a hard, it's a super hard line to be like, okay, how much is my, how much of my personal experience and my feeling is actually 
relevant and interesting for people and how much of that is just like self-indulgent blather. <laughs> I think it's, you know, like a lot of writing <laughs> is editing that stuff out. Mm-hmm. But it's, it can often serve as sort of an entree, right? An access point. Totally. Yeah. And it makes it human and real and immediate. And that's like, that feels super important to me and super, yeah, like I said, like in the stuff that I like to read and that I connect to, there's often that voice. So I try mm-hmm. to kind of have that, you know, like, okay, what are the things from the other side, from the reader side, what feels good? And like, how can I, how can I crib that idea? And how can I emulate that and use that, you know, use that as a tool? Yeah, totally, totally. So also sort of along these same lines, you know, you mentioned maybe post-COVID, <laughs> you're going to run out of stories to tell. And and I, I wonder, you know, I, I think about that um, often, you know, how do we, how do we find the stories that are worth our time, you know, or even more importantly, worth the reader's time? Um, and so I guess, you know, maybe you can, I'm curious as to, as to how you find the stories that you end up telling and how you decide which of those stories are critical and urgent and how you prioritize them, which stories must be, must be told. Yeah. Oh, I wish I had a good actual, you know, framework and pattern for this, but I feel like it's really <laughs> like a rubric. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had, I was like, and eh, on Tuesdays we go out and find stories. <laughs> Not that at all. I think yeah. so much of it is just keeping your eyes open and sort of like talking to people. And have, I mean, one of the coolest things about being a reporter and being a journalist is that it kind of gives you permission to be super nosy and ask people about their lives. Um, and that's, you know, something I've honestly really been missing in this time period where I feel like it's, you know, me and the internet trying to come up with story ideas right now. But I think it is just like always, always having your antenna up, always kind of, you know, asking people, what do you do? What are you, you know, I was at a fire pit with the, you know, some friends and their neighbors the other day. And I was like, Hey, who's got story ideas for me? Like so much of it is just kind of putting it, putting the ask out there. And then I think in terms of like what makes knowing when something is valuable or relevant I think I know I and I think most people have sort of like an antenna for being like oh I haven't heard about that before oh that seems like you kind of know when your antenna goes up and you're like oh hmm, there's more there so I think sort of being paying attention to that listening to people putting the ask out there paying attention to that like hmm, that's something and then digging in and doing the research on it. I think that's part of, you know, a lot of coming up with story ideas is like latching onto that nut and then being like, okay, what does this actually mean? Let's put it in context. Is there a bigger picture? You know, like, is there more here than just this? Here's a cool, you know, cool person is going to do cool things. What does that actually mean? So I don't think, <laughs> like I said, it's not a, there's not sort of a clear process, but I think it's sort of, you know, paying attention and not being scared to be nosy and then having to do, you know, having to do the work on the back end. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of maintaining that curiosity that can carry us through so much of our, our lives, like, you know, that open-mindedness, that sense of, of wonder and, um, and, and, you know, you can call it being nosy, but I think it's so often just being curious and, and being, um, yeah, being open to the experiences of others and trying to truly 
listen and observe. And um, yeah, there's a lot in there, Heather, for sure. So you have, um, your first book is called Downriver into the Future of Water in the West. And this is sort of your, um, it's, it's on, on, on one hand, it's like, it's like travel writing because you did this amazing 700 mile and correct me if I'm off on any of this, but just over 700 miles of downstream travel, basically on your own, right. From the headwaters all the way through um, Wyoming and Utah, the full course of the Green River, um, and you wrote about it. And but you also um, you also did an incredible amount of research and investigating um, and synthesis of data and information to write about this really complex theme, which is water management in the arid West. And not just historical water management, but this sort of, you know, this prognostic view of like, what do we need to do with a changing climate and an increasing population? And so this, this is like a, a topic and a theme that is so intimidating, right, to the average person. And you, and so, and 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 so you tackle that. You like say, I'm going to write about this, um, and then you also at the same time tackle this significant like physical and you know mental challenge of of paddling the length of the river on your own um so there's like this this is an incredibly ambitious project that you undertook and i just you know i'm wondering about that book and about the topic of western water and the green river in particular um you had to become an expert on Western water issues to write Downriver, to write your book. And I just was wondering if you could talk about, you know, how you started down that path toward becoming an expert in this one particular, like particularly complex field of knowledge. And then how did you choose the Green River as your subject or did, or did the Green River more accurately choose you? Yeah, I think that that, I mean, first, I 100% do not feel like an expert in this. And I think that, like you were saying, that Western water management is such a big, complicated, messy, wonky, technical, but also social, emotional, sociological question um, that, you know, I, I, it feels impossible to, especially for, you know, one person to be an expert. Um, and I think part of why, and maybe this happens with a lot of people in books, part of why I, I think when I took it on and when I committed to it, I didn't realize how big it was going to be. And I was sort of maybe a little bit dumb and brave about it. And I might not have done it otherwise if I hadn't, if I had thought about it more. Um, and part of why I wanted to do it um, was because that topic, you know, like I said, I was somebody who my livelihood had been running rivers. It was really important to me. And I still felt really confused by what was going on in water management and what all these, you know, water rights and acre feet and all this stuff meant. And I kind of figured if I was somebody who was both a journalist and a river runner and kind of came into it from both sides, and if I didn't understand it, it felt like there was a really big gap in knowledge and that's kind of where that antenna you know the story idea antenna went up where I was like okay if this is something that's really impacting all these people that feels impossible to understand like what's missing here and how can we tell the story um and then from that idea of kind of conception of like okay here's 
how do we look at how different people manage water in the West where the fights, I basically asked a lot of people some really, really dumb questions for two years. <laughs> I think a lot of that was educating myself, kind of trying to understand a ton of reading to figure out the background, a ton of reaching out to people, you know, saying, what do you know? Who should I talk to? So much, you know, before I even, before I even thought about getting on the river, I had done a ton of kind of background research on even just trying to kind of get the groundwork. And then even when I was going out and it was in the field reporting, you know, I'd go out and talk to somebody and be like, oh man, there's so much I still don't understand about this. And I think part of, I don't, you know, like you have to know so many things to become competent in this. And I think part of what I wanted to do was distill it down and make it readable and give it a narrative and make it engaging. And like we were talking about earlier, kind of be that human lens into the issue. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's so, there's, I look at that book and there's so much that I miss, you know, there's, it's such a hard, hard thing to kind of wrap up, but it is, you know, it is something that felt really important and relevant and like it touched so many people's lives that it felt you know necessary to write about or at least interesting and important and you know there is definitely some there's some hubris involved in writing any kind of book and I think I definitely bit off more than I could chew in that one but I'm glad I'm really glad that I did oh yeah yeah I'm glad you did too you know it's it's um it's such a big, you know, it's such a big project and you, and you mentioned that you look back at it and you think that you miss so much. Um, I'm wondering how you, how you knew, like, how do you, how do you know when a book like that is finished? Oh, you have a deadline and you have to get it in. <laughs> we, that one got pushed back almost a year. Um, I think that it's such a, especially something like that, that's sort of a moving target. You know, I did the reporting and the end of the Obama term and things changed immediately when Trump became president like there's sort of at some point you have to kind of let it go and I think that's a really hard thing to do but I think yeah I don't know I don't know if I have a good if there's a like it never it never feels finished I don't think and at some point you have to and that's I think to go back to kind of the community idea that's where an editor can be really helpful. That's where having other people read your work and kind of say, oh, I don't understand this. You didn't explain this. This part you went too hard in and it's boring and overwrought. Yeah, at some point you have to kind of like step off your island and open the door and let other people help you. Because I think otherwise, I think a lot of writers I know are like this where you can just micromanage and keep turning the dial on word choices <laughs> and moving things around forever. So yeah, I don't know if there is a like, it's perfect. It's done point, but you got to let it go at some point. Right. Right. Release it into the world. And yeah. Are yeah. You drive yeah. Crazy? yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so I have just a couple more questions for you and this one might seem like a bit of a, a leap from what we were just discussing, but you know, writing about water is so often I think <laughs> I think work best left for poets. <laughs> you know, how do we how do we write about something so familiar and so um, quotidian, but yet so magical as as a river and as moving water? So I wonder. You know, this is something I'm often curious about. I just wonder if you, in in all your writing about rivers, 
have found a way to describe them. Oh, yeah, that's such a, I think that that's true of rivers, that's true of mountains, it's the line of like, how do I make this feel vivid and real without making it feel mushy and overwrought and gross can be really hard. And I think that I, I don't know, I get like a real gag reflex around overly earnest nature writing, which I think is sort of a trope that can be overused a lot. And I think for me, I think a lot about, you know, when I'm out in the field, I try to be really, I try to write down everything. Like I try to really, you know, I have a little notebook or I have my, even my iPhone, you know, open, writing down details. What color was were the rocks? What did it look like? What did I see? What was I wearing? You know, like just having those really concrete details to then work off of feels really helpful to me. And I'm not somebody, I think I'm, I try to be sort of simple and, and super clear in my imagery. Like that's something that feels that I think about a lot in terms of word choice and how I'm painting up scenes. Um, yeah, I think that having having as much of it as possible based in, you know, having a having a backlog of vivid details to work from, I think is really, really helpful in what it's like. And then I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think I try to be really intentional with my word choice. It's a hard line. And I think part of that is that everybody's writing voice is really different. And that's what makes writing sort of interesting and lively is that the way I describe, if we're sitting on the bank of a river together and we're both writing it down, it's going to be totally different. You know, your writing versus my writing. And part of that is what makes it cool. But yeah, I think just trying to be trying to be grounded, trying to pay attention to detail, trying to be detailed, trying to keep your eyes open. Those are like the best tools that I know of. And to like, write, yeah, like to always have that, like, okay, what am I feeling right now? What am I looking at right now? You know, it's harder to recreate it when you're trying to go back and think about it than when you're there. So to have that, you know, like have that dash of, of details. Right. It goes back to what you were saying, you know, a while back about having your eyes open, observing constantly, being curious, instead of just taking things at face value, like perhaps sitting with it a little longer than what is comfortable and trying to find the words and the sensory details to match the experience and then keeping a, keeping a document. Um, yeah. What do you take into the field with you? Do you, you said you have your iPhone. Do you take like a little notebook with you everywhere you go? I, it's inter it depends on kind of what stage or phase I'm in. I mean, like, I hate saying that I use my iPhone a ton, but I totally do because I have it with me all the time. So I have something that is a camera that I can, I often take pictures a lot too, to kind of capture, to make sure I remember things, but to have that, that I can, something that I can write notes on in my pocket all the time feels important. And when I'm out reporting, when I'm like intentionally on a reporting trip, I'll have a notebook and a pen. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you can't be precious about it. You just have to like use whatever you've got. And I think that, you know, people have different philosophies on that. And some people really like their specific notebook and their specific pen. But yeah, I think it's like whatever you can, whatever works for you, I think is what works. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a time when we have an abundance of tools and systems, too many, you know, that the, the, the whole system is flooded by potential solutions. It's nice to just find, like you said, something that works, yeah. whatever it is. 
I was talking yeah. to my my freelance group. Somebody was asking questions about one of the women who's starting to work on a book. She was like, how do you guys organize your notes? How do you, you know, like, do you use this app or do you use this thing? And I was like, man, mine is all just like dumped in a Word document and not you know, like then I sort through it. So I think part, yeah, part of it is like, you just have to figure out what works for you. Yeah, totally. Totally. So this summer um, in June, you're actually going to be teaching a field course with Free Flow Institute. Um, and you're going back to the Green River. You're going back to Desolation and Gray Canyons. You know, as we were creating the syllabus for this course, which is a, a journalism course, it's a course in, in environmental reporting, um, we talked a lot about, you know, what, what do we want the participants to learn, you know, from each other, from you, from the process, from the place. And um, I guess I have two questions related to your upcoming, your upcoming free flow course. And I'll ask the first one first, and then we can, I'll ask you the second one, but I'm just, um, you know, we, you talk a lot about truth telling. And in fact, you know, the, the course is, is called the Green River Field Institute, but it's sort of subtitle is telling true stories um, from the edge of desolation. And I just um, hope that you might be able to talk for a second about how you sort of mine the truth from this pervasive darkness and this pervasive um, intentional obfuscation when it comes to social justice issues, ecological issues, for example. How do you find that truth? Yeah, that's a good, actually, I think it's not as hard as it seems. And I think there's kind of this big narrative right now about the media and, you know, truth is hard to find and people don't believe things. And that, that feels very heavy and present right now. But I think that that there are ways, and this is why I think journalism is so, so, so important and why the value I get frustrated when people say the media and kind of generalize because I think there's a big difference between factual reported fact-checked writing and, you know, political blogs or, you know, conspiracy theories or that kind of thing. And I think that it, that makes it, this is why I'm actually really excited to do this course and get to talk about it and get to dig in with people that there are ways that you can go, you can go to primary sources. You can go to the government, you can go to the BLM, you can go to the people who are managing the dams. You can go to the tribes who have had to deal with this kind of erasure of social justice for a long time and talk to the people who are actually doing the thing, who are actually the scientists who are out there looking at how many, you know, they're re releasing the fish from the hatcheries into the river and you can go to the source. And I think that is where the truth comes from. It's from like being on the ground and talking to people and doing your research and kind of saying, okay, here's, you know, when we talk about the Colorado River Compact, can I go and read the text of the compact and see what that actually says instead of, looking at a tweet about it or something like that. I think you have to, the truth comes from digging and like kind of going to the, the first source. And I think that that, we were talking earlier about how there's so much information overload right now and so much coming at you fast. And I think it comes from like taking down, you know, going down for a second and saying, okay, where does this, where does this idea come from and who can I talk to to confirm it and maybe confirm it in multiple ways. Yeah, digging, I think, is the, is the answer for the truth. Yeah, yeah. And and not settling for the the truth that 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 um, seems to sort of percolate to the surface. Yeah, or even saying, but, you know, why are people saying this? Where does this idea come from? Mm -hmm. If people think X, Y, Z, you know, where, what's the root of that? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. 
you know, and then my, my, my sort of secondary question is I wonder what it'll be like for you. Have you been back to the Green River since you got off of your the trip that inspired Downriver? I did a Deso trip two summers ago. I got to go back there. And that's actually, you kind of asked earlier about, did I find the green or did the green, green find me? And that, that chunk, I did a trip there in college. And that was sort of like my first big Western multi-day river trip was through Deso. Um, and so that's such a touch point for me. And that's a place that feels really, you know, personally important to me. And also is a chunk of river that kind of holds all these different parts that I think are relevant and important. You know, there's kind of this, there's like the beautiful white water. There's some conflict with the tribes. There's oil and gas mining around there. There's endangered fish. There's all the, all the kind of like factors that feel relevant to what the future of the river is going to look like are all in that canyon. So it's such a cool, it's such a special place to be able to kind of talk about what the future is going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's the first river, the first multi-day section of river that I ever worked no on too, as, yeah, as an infant, as an infant raft guide. Um, <laughs> baby raft guide. <laughs> yeah, as a baby raft guide. I think Desolation Canyon is, is, is special for all those reasons that you just mentioned. Um, and I think it, it lives in the hearts of so many, so many river, river people in the West. So I'm so excited for, for you to get back there and, um, and, and, and teach and learn and observe. So the, the 2021 theme for content with Free Flow Institute is, is free flowing rivers. Um, this is sort of the, the notion around which we're trying to focus all of our, all of our content and our courses and our development. And so a free flowing river by definition runs unobstructed, right? Unimpeded by dams or impoundments or levees or diversions, et cetera. Um, and lately in the past decade or so, there's been interest in our country of removing those obstructions from rivers, those obstructions to downstream flow, um, which necessarily means removing dams. But so much of the resistance um, to dam removal comes from this place of national nostalgia because dams represent, you know, eras bygone and, you know, past ambitions and successful attempts at control. And I was reading um, your essay um, earlier called Lighthouse for Sale, which was a notable in the 2015 Best American Essays book. Um, and you talk about in that essay, you talk about the nostalgia of obsolete public property, which is such an interesting phrase. Um, and so I'm hoping that you might be able to talk for just a moment about how that cultural nostalgia or other phenomena related to, you know, the emotional being that is American society, how how those, those phenomena can impede progress when it comes to um, ecological um, or social um, movement in a forward direction. Oh man, there's so much, there's so much tied up <laughs> in that. I think, I think that I've been thinking a lot lately about nostalgia and about, you know, I'm just wrapping up this book, which is about ski bums and ski towns. And part of that is like the history of that. And a lot of it is tied to this, you know, really problematic idea of manifest destiny and moving to the West and sort of like we come and we conquer. And I think in so many ways, in ways that I'm still, in, you know, definitely unpacking for myself, that's so tied to this conception of like 
what our relationships with exploring and adventure and being outside look like and how we kind of interact with the world. And I think that that a lot of the work I think that's happening around environmental justice and social justice and sort of like how do we make the world a better place for the future is around unpacking these things that we've kind of held to be true or to be right or to be kind of you know like it already happens we can't fix it and I think dams are such an interesting one on that front because in some ways I have this is a little bit of a digression but my mom's best friend from growing up who's still really close to our family um, her father was a Bureau of Reclamation engineer and he helped build the Hoover Dam you know, he was a DC guy but and I've talked to her about this a lot where she was like you know my dad really thought that he was making the country better and that he was bringing water to people and he was you know like feeding development and you have to assume that those people were kind of trying to do the right thing and that they were good people in their time but just because that was true then doesn't mean that it was it's true now and I think trying to unpack that and sort of be like you know sitting with what currently exists and then trying to do better in the future is a really twisty tangly question but I think it's such a such an important you know interesting one and dams are you know I live fairly close to the Columbia River where there's a lot of talk about taking down dams and even in those when you read about or hear about or talk to people about the resistance to those and a lot of those dams are kind of front of the river dams that don't serve you know don't produce power don't really serve any you know societal purpose there still is this resistance to this like well that's the way that's the way things are that's the way they have been and I don't I, I don't have any answers but I think it's such an interesting question to try and unpack and to try and kind of say okay here's where we're sitting right now how do we be better for the future what do we what do we hold on to what do we try and get rid of you know what what parts of history and nostalgia are actually serving us and what aren't is a I think a super interesting question. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, it's just, it's loaded and it's, you know, on a hyper-personal level and also like on a, on a societal, global, cultural level, there's a lot to think about in there. Um, Heather, I would love to just keep asking you questions and, um, I, it's so nice to to chat with you and hear a little bit about your evolution as a writer um, and your forward progress. And um, just super, super thankful that you took the time to talk with me today. And I think that, you know, we'll just ha- end with maybe two quick questions. One would be if you could just mention one or two of your journalistic or literary mentors, people that whose work you respect. Um, and then also if there's anything else that you would like um, the Free Flow Institute community to know or think about before you go. Yeah. People whose work I go back to a ton, especially when it, in terms of rivers and in terms of like that idea of how is a writer kind of like a lens into the natural world um I always go back to Ellen Malloy she's she's a I just think she's so smart and funny and she brings together all these threads in really cool ways um and her her husband was actually the river ranger in Deso um and her book Raven's Exile which is about you know being out there on the river with him is one probably my favorite book of all time um, and then I also often go back to John McPhee uh, and Encounters with the Archdruid is sort of one of those 
you know, touchstone, how do we write about environmental issues in a way that's human and pulls people in and is journalistic and reported and factual, but isn't crusty and boring and dry. Um, so yeah, I think those two, Barbara Kingsolver, her essays and her writing about the natural world, I really, really love. I could go, I could go on about it for a long time. <laughs> but yeah, and I think that in like in terms of your second question, like I'm just really excited to be, I don't know, I personally am feeling really starved for like having the chance to talk about this stuff with people and to be out on the river and in the field and to, you know, like get to have these conversations in, in person and even to think, you know, like that question about dams, that's such an, such an interesting thing to think about, the question about truth telling and facts, like to be able to, I'm just really excited to be able to have those conversations you know, out there in the world and to be on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And to share campfires yeah, and to share beach that. time. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we're all starved for that. So um, definitely looking forward to getting on the river with you someday, Heather. So thank you so much. To learn more about Heather's work, you should go to her website, heatherhandsman.com. And there's still space left in her Green River Field Institute this summer. So to learn more or to apply, go to freeflowinstitute.com programs. And hers is the first one on the lineup of our 2021 field courses. Check it out. See if it could be a good fit for you or for someone you know. And get in touch if you'd like to have an adventure with Heather this summer. And as always, thank you to the Montana Arts Council, the Prop Foundation, and the Free Flow family for supporting the podcast. You can subscribe to the Free Flow podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Thanks so much for listening.